Good morning. Um, you know, this is uh, a rebuilding time for just about every church in the country, including our own, and uh, we're rebuilding our volunteer teams. And we have, we have needs here. Um, we have a lot of kids. There were 150 kids here last Sunday, which is about 75% of where we were post-pandemic. But we don't quite have 75% of our volunteers back. And so um, we just want you to know that there are some needs here. There's opportunity for you to serve. Right now, there are a lot of babies that need held. So uh, during the pandemic, our, youth ministry, our children's ministry grew by birth. So um, there's been lots of births. So you're going to dedicate some babies next week. You'll meet some of them. But that's an opportunity to serve. We have needs on Sunday morning, uh, opportunities to serve with just setup. We're trying to do stuff outside. We have a whole video crew. There's opportunity there. Opportunity for experienced small group leaders. There's opportunity to serve through our justice and mercy ministry. And so we just want to keep inviting you to participate, to be a part of what God's doing. Find your place to serve. It's a great way to meet people, to find your people here. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll keep letting you know about those things next couple months as people begin to return and the needs begin to shift again. And so um, thank you for considering all that. I want to start today by telling you about a book that I've shared about before. The book is called The Blue Zones, and um, it's funny how I found out about this book. My mom used to be um, a huge fan of Oprah when she was on every afternoon, and my mom said, did you watch Oprah today, Brian? And I said, no, mom, I missed it. I, I missed Oprah. <laughs> she said, you shouldn't have missed it. My favorite guest was on today. It was Dr. Oz. Do you know about Dr. Oz? I said, no, mom, I, I, don't, I don't watch Oprah. And she said, well, you should, but I'm calling you to tell you about a book that they mentioned and a study uh, that this book captures, a book called The Blue Zones. The Blue Zones is the term that's used to describe these four places on earth where people live the longest. So a higher percentage of people live into their 90s, higher percentage of people live uh, past 100, and longevity and resilience um, all of those things are a way to describe life in the blue zones. And so there's different ones. There's one in Japan and Okinawa, Sardinia, Italy, Loma Linda, California, and then a region of Costa Rica. These are pockets where the way they live contributes to people living healthier, longer, more resilient lives. Now, what was worth her calling her son up to promote Oprah and what she saw that day and what's worth me sharing with you today about the blue zones is that every blue zone had its own unique um, characteristics. Like people had their own diets. They, they lived different. There was unique things. And so in some places they ate a lot of fish. In some places they drank red, red wine. Some places they didn't. It's just different um, things that were contributing to their health. But the one common thing that showed up in every blue zone was high degrees and levels of connectivity with other people. And if you get towards the end of the book, he makes some conclusions, some suggestions to help people live longer from what they've learned from the blue zones. And the author actually says that in every blue zone, there is high connectivity to family, faith communities, and other people pursuing similar things. So what they're describing is three different levels of interconnected community that is a part of people's life, not just for a little while, but for a very, very long time. It's actually one of those things that literally keeps people alive. Now, for the last six months, we've been saying the same thing over and over again. It's really important for people to be together, 
to try to find safe ways to be together. A few weeks ago when we started this series, I asked you to think about the ways that you can move towards your church right now. You can move towards others, whether it's uh, uh, dinner in your home or coffee with a friend outside or attending a service here. But being together is actually really, really important. Now, I'm not telling you that story to share that, although that's helpful because that's still true. Still very important that we find each other once again. But I tell you that story because I'm wondering, what is it that those people had that allowed them to sustain those important relationships decade after decade? In other words, what made their relationships resilient? Because one thing we know is that relationships are prone to fall apart, and division is great. And whether it's divorces or being estranged from children that we know is going up right now in our culture, or it's just divisions over political views or divisions with your faith community or friends or neighbors, there's many reasons to divide right now. And so I'm interested in what is it that those cultures had that allowed them to stay and preserve these very important relationships that actually lead to longer life. And so today, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the subject of restoring our relationships. So here at Cornerstone, we've been sharing this message with you for a while, the message of peacemaking. We believe that it is a message for our time. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It is a mark of those that are with Jesus, that we actually are people who are about the ministry of reconciliation. That's how Paul described it. Where there is division, there becomes connection and healing. Where there is hostility, there is forgiveness. That we don't just move through these short-term relationships and treat people like a commodity. They're simply in our life when it's convenient, when they give something back to us. What does it take to be the type of person that carries their relationships through decades? Whether it's family, friend, faith communities, other things. And so we're wanting to talk about that today. This is really important to be a peacemaker, ultimately because it's about God. God is in the ministry of reconciliation. The reason that we're even here today on a Sunday at church, that we can sing worship songs, that we can praise God and and just smile when we think about God is because he's moved towards us in our own division and he bridged the gap. And so anytime that we act in a peacemaking way, we are displaying the characteristics of God and we are shining light on the gospel. Shines bright in a very divisive world. Now, saying all that, I want to set the peacemaking subject aside for just a moment, and I want to catch us up where we are in our series. So we're in a series called A People in a Place, and we're taking um, different messages from the book of Nehemiah, and we're trying to apply this idea of rebuilding something that took everyone and trying to apply that to where we are as a community. And so we've um, taken you through a, a movement of things. So just as Nehemiah reflected on his losses. Remember, he's told by his brother that the walls lay in ruins, and he weeps. And Nehemiah asks for permission to travel back to Jerusalem to build the walls, and when he's there, he travels around the walls, and he reflects, and he assesses the damage. We've, during this series, asked you to reflect on your losses and your wins over this last year. This is part of being a healthy person, that we grieve our losses, that we learn to lament the things that have happened, but we also learn to celebrate. But after this um, phase of reflection, Nehemiah went into the restoring phase, and that's where we want to go today. Next few weeks, we want to talk to you about restoration, specifically today, restoration of relationships. So just as Nehemiah rebuilt walls and doors and gates, 
We have relationships that now lay in rubble after the last year. There's many reasons for this. I think we all understand it. But this is part of restoring what God is doing. It's a part of moving towards others saying, yeah, I, I, I refuse to just ignore the damage that's been done. I refuse to ignore the hostility that exists between these people and me because they are important. And even if they're not that important to you, this is important to God. And this is part of what it means to be a Christian in the world today. And so I want to take you through a, a few of the Nehemiah passages. I want to read you two lists today that paint a beautiful picture of God's people coming together None of this coming together would be possible without the ministry of reconciliation and learning how to forgive one another and to practice um, all, of, all of these great things that Jesus has shown us. And so I want to take you to Nehemiah chapter 3. The restoration of the walls is beginning to happen. And this, by the way, is an amazing feat. It was done in 52 days, something like two and a half miles, 40 feet high. They rebuild the wall in 52 days. Not a miracle is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. The miracle was people coming together. You could ask the question, what's a greater miracle? God just showing up in over, overwhelming power or getting a bunch of people who are very different from one another to work together. What's a greater miracle? By the way, no one was getting paid. No other motivations except that this is a worthy work to do. So you get to chapter 3. And I'm going to read you a few verses. We could go on. It's going to take a, it could take a long time. But if you have your own Bibles, you can look there. But you get to verse 17. This phrase re begins to repeat itself. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Ruham, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Kaliah, carried out repairs of the district. Verse 18, next to him. And I'm not going to embarrass myself any longer with these names. Verse 19, next to him. Verse 20, next to him. Verse 21, next to him. And it keeps going over and over and over again. See it? Here's what I want you to see. Everyone was a part of the work of restoration. And what we're inviting you into is to be a part of the work of restoration here. And today it starts with the restoration of our relationships. What if when we get together... In homes or over Zoom, we all had stories of, next to me, we were doing this restorative work. And this is a person I moved towards with forgiveness. And this is a person that I sat and had the hard conversation about conflict with. And then someone else has a story, and someone else has a story. Side by side, they did the work of restoration. Verse 1 of that same chapter, notice who's working Ilya Shabib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. This is perhaps the most powerful man in all of Israel. This is the high priest that worked in the temple. He had taken off his priestly robes and was working the wall, working the gate. His friends are with him. His co-workers are with him. Everyone had a part to play in restoring the ruins of the wall. Next to him, next to them, next to her. Now let me tell you who's there working together because as many of you know, this event takes place after an event called the exile. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. That's why the walls lay in ruins. And many people had been gathered up and hauled away to live as political slaves. Some stayed in the city and just like lived um, in the destruction. It was terrible. 
But after 70 years, people began to return back to Jerusalem. And there were three different waves of people returning to Jerusalem. But they were coming from all around the world. So Jews had been living in Persia and Babylon and Assyria. And some would have been in in, in Egypt. And some would have been in the north in Turkey. And over this time, several generations, people would have learned different languages. They would have worn different clothes. And as the Jews we see in Babylon, when when Jeremiah is giving them instruction, they begin to have kids. They begin to intermarry. And so their skin color actually would have changed. They would have looked different from one another. It's not just one group that looks and sounds the same. These are people from all over the world coming together. It's amazing working together. And if you read through chapter 3, you see that there are bricklayers there working. They're the helpful ones. But guess who's next to them? Perfume makers and artists and craftsmen and goldsmiths and chemists and salesmen and merchants. They're all mentioned here. They're all there working together. So get the picture. Imagine what you see. A diverse group of people. You hear different languages, accents, dialects coming from different places. They're all here together to restore something that God cares about. A people in a place. See, the work was never about the wall. It was about the community. There wasn't a neighborhood in Jerusalem that didn't need the walls around it repaired. And if they weren't all repaired, then everyone suffered. And so everyone understood how important it is to be a part of restoring that which had been damaged and been neglected. Chapter 6, verse 15, might be chapter 5, what's the reference there, John Stewart? There we are, chapter 5. Look what Nehemiah is doing. So he's not mentioned in chapter 3 working on the wall, but he certainly is. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. So before Nehemiah comes as the governor, there are governors that were exploiting the people, taking all the choice food, not doing the hard work. So not only is the priest there working, the governor is there working, Nehemiah. In chapter 6, verse 2. We're going to share this in a few weeks, but there was opposition to this project. There's enemies to Israel's project of rebuilding the, the walls. And so uh, they come up with this plan. They're going to go to Nehemiah and they're going to ask him to come and go to a meeting outside of the city so that they can kill him. Nehemiah actually figures out what ha- is, is about to happen, so he doesn't go. But look what he says in verse 2. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent a message to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Nehemiah would not be distracted. You have people working with one another next to the other. Next to the other. And this work that's being done next to one another is a great work that can't be stopped. It shouldn't stop. It's a priority. So I'll just speak for myself. Rarely in my life have I been challenged to make restoring relationships a priority. Pick up the phone and have the hard conversation to invite someone out to coffee, 
to go to counseling, to go to mediation. Rarely in my life have I made that a priority. In fact, the places and the times that I've made it a priority, I had to because things had gotten that bad. Like I was screwing up my marriage bad enough, I had to go to counseling. I wish I could say that I was wise enough to go before it got to that place, but I wasn't. Well, look what Nehemiah is doing. He's prioritizing the work of restoration. And so if we apply this, it's prioritizing the work of restoring those broken relationships. Why is this hard for us? Why is it hard to prioritize? Three reasons, I think. Just common sense. First of all, there's a lot in this world to divide us. There's a lot in this last year to divide us. There's a lot right now to divide us. And I'm, I'm not a fan of the media right now. Really not a fan of politics, although I think they're both important. You know why they're so divisive? It's because we let them be divisive. Like they're simply taking advantage of something that exists in the American character. It's something that exists in the character of the American church. So they're not the cause. They're just simply taking advantage of it. So there's a lot in this world to divide us. Number two, there's been increased pressure this year. Anytime we're under more pressure, we usually don't do as well relationally. You notice that? When there's stress, when there's pressure, we have a hard time um, being honest with ourselves. We have a hard time being there for other people. The pressure exposes the character gaps that are inside of us that make something like this so difficult. Uh, an illustration of this is uh, when I was in college, I went to Hawaii for a month. I had a, I had a very convenient college roommate who was from Hawaii. God had provided. <laughs> and we liked each other enough that he was willing to let me come live with him for a whole month that summer so I could learn to surf. And it was amazing. One day, he said, hey, Brian, you want to go scuba diving? I have a friend that's an instructor. And he's not going to make us go through any of the classes. He'll just hook us up and we can go. And I said, that's exactly how I want to do it. I don't want to be like those people in a pool, scuba diving in a pool. I'm ready. So we went out in the ocean, put our stuff on, gave us some instructions, and we start to dive down. Now, he had told us, hey, you need to descend gradually. And when you come up, it needs to be gradual as well because of the pressure. So we start to descend. And I can't make it past about 12 feet because my ear was hurting so bad. And so I just kind of kept waiting around that area, I kept trying to pop my ears, but the pressure in my ears were so great that I couldn't go any further. The pressure was exposing something in my ear, and so after about 10 minutes of trying this, I thought, I'm wasting my time. I went back up to the surface, and I asked the instructor, I said, is there something that I can do for my ears? And he said, how does it feel? And I described it to him, and he asked me this question. He says, have you ever damaged your eardrum? your eardrum. And I said, in fact, I, I have. I had forgot about this. A few years before, I had ruptured an ear, my eardrum in a wrestling match. Don't ask me how that happened. I've never seen it happen before to anyone except myself. But I had ruptured my eardrum in a wrestling match, and my eardrum had never really healed correctly. The pressure from the water was exposing something that I wasn't even aware that was weak inside of me. So think about what happened this last year. We already, have, we already have lots of reasons to divide. Now there's lots of pressure. We're panicking. We're afraid. We want to control people. Huh. 
No wonder there is rubble to clean up. No wonder there are relationships to restore. You know, this is taking a toll on marriages. But you are not alone. If you're someone that's struggling in your marriage right now, you're not alone. This is just the work God has for you now. This is that tough season that you have to walk with your spouse. You have to get support. You may have to get some outside help. But you're in good company, right? Lots of reasons to divide under tremendous pressure. And here's the third reason why peacemaking is difficult. It's because we actually really stink at it. How many of you, besides just making up with your siblings, were taught how to make peace? Usually we're told just keep the peace. Don't disrupt the system. Be quiet. See, peacemaking actually moves through hostility and transforms the conflict. What we get taught to do is to avoid it or play passive-aggressive with other people or just say, ah, it's, it's not worth it, I'm done. That's why we treat relationships like they're commodity because when conflict occurs, we say, it's gonna cost too much, I'm willing to throw it out. And so there's lots of reasons to divide, lots of pressure, and, and we really suck at this. This is a discipleship issue for all of us. This is learning to be like Jesus in the world today, to live as peacemakers. Here's how we describe peacemaking here at Cornerstone. I just want to remind you of the six principles. We'll say this. These are all on our website. We have a ministry called Peacemaking here at Cornerstone. You're going to hear from Brooklyn in just a moment. She's the head of this ministry. She can tell you a little bit more. But I want to take you through the six principles, okay? Here they are. First of all, it requires a great and ever dependence on the presence of God. Because conflict is hard, because it tweaks stuff in us, because we're pulling all our past conflicts into the present conflict, and we're assuming that this boss or this friend is acting like your dad long ago. I mean, it's complicated. We often work through these hostilities at a deficit. We need to be connected to the presence of God. What does God do with us? God brings his peaceful presence. He gives us peace. And he resources us with love and empathy. And he gives us the courage to own what we need to, to own. But he helps us feel safe. You know, I've been in conversations with people where someone kind of went on the attack. And someone said, I feel unsafe. I understand that. But I've been in conversations where someone's just truthfully sharing what the other did to them. And the person misuses that phrase, I feel unsafe. Now, you just don't like what they're sharing. Okay, how do we overcome that? Well, we need resource. God makes us safe. He helps us feel safe. Like even if this thing doesn't work out, even if it actually gets worse, we have the thing that we need most of all, which is our relationship with him. It can be, it can be difficult, but it's not devastating. So we depend on the presence of God. Number two is we carry into all of these conversa conversations a vision of the kingdom. Now, if you're working through conflict with another Christian, let's say you're working through uh, with someone here in this church, or you're working through conflict that you might have with someone on our staff. I mean, we've made decisions regarding COVID that have made some people upset. We know that. I'm also an eight. I don't pretend to ever try to please everybody. I'm okay with that. But I'm also okay sitting down and working through it, okay? 
So if you're working through that, we have a shared kingdom vision. What is the kingdom's vision? That all things are made new. Things are restored. Relationally, they're restored. There's no more weeping, crying. There's healing. If you're working through this as someone that doesn't share the kingdom vision, that's okay. You get to bring the vision of the kingdom in. You know what God is doing. You bring in his agenda. Number three, this is where it gets a little more specific. When you're working through problems, you need to articulate the hostility. It needs to be named. It needs to be shared. You need to listen to it. Number four, we practice empathy as a way to understand. So Brene Brown, she says a lot of great things about empathy. She said this a few months ago. In order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. So you try to put yourself in their shoes and imagine coming to the same conclusion. Now, they, it doesn't matter. They may be right or wrong. But empathy is a powerful tool in dealing with conflict. Number five, we take personal responsibility. Now, this is important because usually what we do is we use a lot of you statements. You did this. You need to do this. And we don't use a lot of I statements. I did this. I accept this. I will change in this way. So this is repenting, this is asking for forgiveness, this is giving forgiveness, this is confession. So it's all of those things that help heal relationships. These are hard to do, right? It's hard to admit that you were wrong. It's hard to say you're sorry. That's why we need God's presence helping us. So we take responsibility. And then the last part of peacemaking is to honor the person and the process. They may not be in the same place you are. They may not be ready. They may never be ready. Remember what Paul said? As much as it's possible with you, live with everyone in peace. It's on us. Let's not pretend that we can control anyone else. We barely control ourselves. And so peacemaking is something that we practice. So Brooklyn, come on out. As Brooklyn comes out, um, I will tell you that there, one thing I love about peacemaking and one thing I don't like. First of all, it actually works. Not everything is always perfect, but I'll tell you what, when you sit down with someone, you, you articulate the hostility, you share empathy, you take responsibility, you sleep better that night. You do. Even if they're still mad at you. Because there's not these unsaid things that need to be said. So it actually works. It actually works to bring peace to you. It's what needs to happen for relationships to come back together so they last a long time. I see this happening in marriages all the time. But here's the thing I don't like about peacemaking. It's not a one-time thing. It's like exercise. You have to do it often to stay healthy. So Brooklyn is uh, on our staff here at Cornerstone, and she is in charge of our peacemaking ministry. And um, I asked her to share a couple things. So first of all, uh, I want you to know that anytime we ask you to do something as a leadership, we kind of want to take those steps first. And so back in January, our staff spent some time reflecting on the last year, and we also spent time doing some restorative work, mainly regarding relationships. And so we've actually been spending time with people we know that we're mad at or they're mad at us. And we're taking this very serious. And so, um, Brooklyn, I, I would love for you to start by just sharing what peacemaking looks like for you right now. Yeah. Um, I know you care about it. You're not just doing it because I asked you to, but you care about this as well. <clears throat> First of all, it's a exhilarating being on this side of that plexiglass. Yeah. <laughs> Feels a little different. Um, thank you so much. Peacemaking 
for our family, um, well, here's the deal. I'm pretty sure that all of us could articulate pretty well some tension points that have arisen in our lives within the last 16 months, right? We don't have to necessarily call them out, but I can look out my window in my, in my house and I can watch my neighbors avoid one another and go to the other side of the street if they feel uncomfortable and maybe that's their personal safety and that's totally fine as well. Or we can engage in board meeting conversations and it is tense, very tense. Talking about COVID disagreements with your neighbors out in the cul-de-sac is totally. Tense. Oh, what a surprise. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and so I asked the Lord, I just, I mean, we can do, we can go through politics, we can go through race, we can go through gender issues, we can go through COVID, we can go, we've been through a lot. And I asked the Lord, God, what, where do you have us showing up right now to represent who you are without building more tension? I don't want my neighbors to be like, oh, that's the crazy people house. Those are the particulars or the, oh man, peculiar people. And the Lord was like, remember who the enemy is. Remember who the actual enemy is. It is not any of those things that make it feel like the enemy. It is not COVID. It is not any of these things. The enemy is actually the enemy. And our work is to step in. It's to step into the hard places. It's to engage with our neighbors. And it's to engage in our family. A super vulnerable space for our family right now is that we are walking in a season where a family member is making it really, really difficult to want to engage in relationship with them. The choices they have made have deeply affected our family, deeply affected um, my parents. And it's everything inside of me that wants to build these walls, build the tall walls up, you can't touch us, go your own way, do your own thing. And the Lord is like, no, remember who the enemy is. The enemy is not this situation. And yes, we have to have good boundaries, healthy boundaries, but we also have to step in and we have to um, be Christ. And I think that that is the work that the Lord has for us, is to bring a little bit of heaven here on earth right now, which is showing aggressive kindness in a lot of ways. So with that, we have this awesome peacemaking ministry. And we something that's like we don't necessarily have talked about much but we have a reconciliation retreat that's coming up specifically for all of the pastors in Boulder. And it is pastors from all different types of Christian influencing faith. Believers in Christ, but maybe we don't agree on some of the issues. Maybe some of the issues why you don't um, endorse that church or that you don't want to associate yourself. It's just not right. All of those pastors are going to get together, and it's not going to be fun conversations but we're going to sit in the same room, and we're going to learn to empathize with one another. We're going to learn to understand one another because the body of Christ is many expressions, but one God, one church, one capital C church. So that's super cool. And then also in May, we have roundtable conversations that we're calling Peace Talks, and those are going to take place here, and we're going to surround those around race, which don't run. It's okay. Everyone has their own opinions. Everyone has been hurt in a different way. But still we come together and we sit together and we learn and we understand from one another, not so that we can agree, but so that we can walk away being like, 
that person, not only are they totally in love with the Lord, but they have a different opinion, and I can respect that, and we can move forward as a church to impact our community. Awesome. Yeah? Yeah. And we, uh, this is a brand new ministry. It's getting built out. So if you're passionate about these things, like having the hard conversations around controversial sh- subjects or uh, helping people deal with difficult relational things that are taking place, talk to Brooklyn. And um, this is going to be a part of our future at Cornerstone, and so we're kind of in this for the long haul, but we're excited about some of these things that we haven't been able to do the last year, because we can actually now be together. Um, But thank you, Brooklyn. Let's give Brooklyn a hand. She's doing a great job. So they're very different. They're gathered around this wall. They're putting the pieces back together. We're using that as a metaphor. We're very different. We're putting the pieces back together. Might be in your family. Might be your neighborhood. Might be with people in your church or your small group. But lean in. You'll come up with a thousand reasons why this is a bad idea. You will. But the way God works is that there's blessing on the other side of the hard thing, right? There's life past the grave, you find your life by losing it. This is one of those things. Like you, you, you die to this part of you that says, I just want, I'm fine just being, living with the vision and not at least doing my part towards, with moving towards somebody. And so that's the challenge, really simple, that you would take this as serious as your staff is here at Cornerstone as you move towards other people with the restoration of your most important relationships. I do want to tell you one last story that I believe is a picture of what happens when God's church does this, okay? So I'm going to read you another list. And actually, I left my Bible in the back, so I'm going to tell you about this other list, all right? If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 16. The book of Romans is an amazing book. It's Paul's longest letter. He's writing, it says in chapter 1, to all of those in Rome who are with Jesus, okay? So all of the saints, he says. There were actually probably thousands at this point meeting in different houses. He says this is a letter that's meant to be circulated to all of them. Paul makes amazing statements through the first 15 chapters about Jesus. I mean, it starts off in chapter 1 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, starting with the Jew and then the Gentile. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Bring it up. <clears throat> Got too into worship and forgot an important thing that a preacher needs. Thank you. So he's saying all of these amazing things. You get to chapter 16, and a lot of times people just breeze right past it. You don't read it. Because it's one of those boring chapters in the Bible that's full of names. Okay? Like the genealogy of Jesus, right? Who reads that? Maybe you do. Okay, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sinatera, and I ask you to receive her in, in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints and to give her and to help the help that she may need for you, for she has been a great help to me and to many others. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Verse 5. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend 
Epitinus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andonicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were with Christ before I was. And then it keeps going, name after name after name. You can keep reading. This one I want you to notice. There are Greek names. There are Latin names. There are Jewish names. Paul's uh, relatives are mentioned. Twin sisters are mentioned. You saw there a second ago, the first convert in the city is mentioned and remembered. These female leaders that were very strong that he calls out from the very beginning, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple that was very influential having people in their houses. Paul knows these people, so he's greeting them with personal greetings like, I remember you, I remember you, I remember you. But what I want you to see that chapter 16 tells is it tells a story of incredible diversity. Greek, Jews, and Latin names. You have rich people mentioned here. You have servants mentioned here. You have slaves mentioned here. You have men and women, old people, young people, people with differing backgrounds uh, about how to see the world. They had all met each other around the well of Jesus. Many historians believe that this is the most diverse mention of names in all ancient writing. Think of that. The most diverse chapter of any book or section of any book in, in all of ancient writings we have. They're meeting in Rome, this cosmopolitan city that has people from different places. Most likely you have Africans. You have people that look like eventual Europeans. You have Semitic people all together. Paul mentions all of them, or many of them, I should say. But then you skip down and you get to verse 22. And we see something even more amazing about the diversity of this community. So just notice, the diversity could lead to hostility. They had understood peacemaking and were practicing it. That's why they're still together. You get to verse 22. Something strange shows up. It says this. Remember, I thought Paul wrote Romans. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Told you about Tertius before, but everyone needs reminded of him at least once a year. Tertius is a co-worker with Paul. And Tertius happens to be the scribe that's writing down the book of Romans at this time. So imagine some room, Paul, and these friends that are mentioned here. One of the other ones is a man named Quartus. Okay, I'll tell you about their names in a moment. But they're in a room together. They're writing out the letter of Romans, getting ready to be sent. It's a leadership meeting. What is it that would be important to share with the church? It's not just Paul on his own. Paul is shepherding and leading in a community. And Tertius happens to be a scribe that's writing all of these things down. Now imagine this. Paul's doing all of these things and he stops and he looks at Tertius and he says, I want you to greet him now, Tertius, because you're important. So Tertius actually gets to greet them in the letter from Paul. I, Tertius, also greet you in the Lord. And here's what's amazing about that. Tertius is uh, a Latin name that comes from the Latin word for three, the number three. Quartus is most likely his brother. That comes from the Latin word uh, that, is, uh, that represents the number four. 
Why would someone in Roman society be called three and be called four? Well, because they were born slaves. A third of the Roman Empire at this time were slaves. They were political slaves. It's different than the slavery we have here. They'd conquer a country. They'd bring those people in. They'd be workers in people's households. Tertius has the name three because he was born a slave and wasn't given the dignity of having his own name. He was given this name by his master. That's why he was called Tertius. There are many Tertiuses if you study ancient Rome. There's many Quartuses, many threes, many fours. Tertius is a former slave, and he's in the room where the book of Romans is getting written. And he's not a slave. He's a co-worker with Paul. And Paul says, Tertius, you greet him. Think Tertius lived his life invisible? Probably, right? He's probably not shocked by the affirmation because Paul Paul treated him this way all the time. Let me tell you a little more about Tertius. We believe that Tertius was a part of the group of 72 from Luke chapter 10 that Jesus said of those disciples, I'm sending you out. Remember what he said? The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Many people believe Tertius was a part of that group. At some point, he had left his job as a slave, got caught up in the Jesus movement, and now was a leader. We know that he was a leader because eventually, later on in his life, he would become the bishop of Iconium, a great big city in the country of Turkey. See how amazing it is? People being lifted up. This is the most diverse mention of names in ancient writing. They're a community together. Paul knows their stories. Do you think that it's possible that they committed themselves to peacemaking so that this thing could be possible? Absolutely. It's a picture like what was being rebuilt. The walls of of Jerusalem with Nehemiah and that crowd. It's amazing. Listen, there's always someone here that feels like they don't fit, they don't belong because of whatever it is they think. Listen, that is not true. We need a Tertius, we need a Priscilla, we need a Quartus, we need a Paul. We need all of it here. That will not be possible unless we make a commitment to be people who work through hostility because it will happen. And so that's the simple message for today as we think about restoration. Certainly not easy to do. And so I want to close by um, just praying for us and then we're going to take communion together as... We come out to worship, but let's just pray into this for a moment, and then uh, we'll share the elements together. Father, thank you that you care about our relationships more than we ever could. Help bring to mind those relationships that need restoring right now. Most of us don't have to think very hard. We don't need a lot of help, but if there's someone we're divided from, that you would like us to move towards them. I pray that you would show us who they are. And then, Father, I pray that we would be connected to your presence. When all of the, the reasons why we shouldn't do this come up in our mind, I pray that we would hear the message of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they would be called children of God. I pray that we'd hear the words of Paul, that we have been given the message in the ministry of reconciliation, so to represent you. So, Father, I pray that we would connect, be connected to your truth and your presence. And, Lord, we know that not all of these things always work out. 
But there is no beauty like we see in Romans chapter 16. There is no beauty like we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 unless you have people who are willing to do the hard thing and work through difficult things. And so I bless Cornerstone Church with an increased desire and skill and ability to bring peace, to forgive, to take ownership of the things that we've done. Use us, Father. Use us at this time to be a light in this way. And we love you. We ask for your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's stand together and take the elements. It's very appropriate we're taking communion today as we talk about reconciliation. You know what's a common scene? In the New Testament church, when people would do this, before they'd take the elements, they'd go to one another that they had a problem with. They'd ask for forgiveness. They'd extend forgiveness. They'd take Paul's words seriously from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he said, there's an unworthy way to take this. It's when you hold bitterness and hate in your heart for your brother. How could you enjoy forgiveness, remember forgiveness, remember reconciliation when you are full of hate? full of bitterness, unforgiveness in your heart for your brother or sister. That's what Paul said. And so as we do this today, let's celebrate the reconciliation that we've experienced because of Jesus, but let's also then stay committed to the very thing that he is. That what this represents for us, him moving towards us, offering forgiveness, that this would be the source of power that we would do it with others. And so just as Jesus instructed, he took the bread, said, this is my body broken for you. Let's eat. Cup that represents his blood poured out for us. Let's drink in remembrance of him.